This is a Soulfire production. What is up, everybody? How you doing today? We've got a bonus episode, or maybe this will be the new norm, but I want to break down exactly how this is going to go. So what I did a, a little call to action for on social media this week was a video submissions. Video submissions uh, sent to me via the DMs that we could put on the show because I wanted to add some more content to the week and get two shows out to the public in addition to the uh, to the one Patreon show that we do on the weekend, so what we did is we had a couple of questions here. I didn't, I didn't I didn't put it out there too much. I didn't like really hammer it because I just wanted to see how this would work and what the response was. But I like it. I think it's fun. I think it's fun to get some videos up. I think it's fun to see the faces of the politically homeless out there in the world, and uh, it's something we'll keep doing. But today we're gonna have just a couple of stories. Just have a little fun. Get into some things that I think were interesting that I've, I've stumbled across the past couple of days, and then we'll get into the listener submissions, which I'm very excited about. We've got. A couple big things on the horizon. We got a new website coming where you'll be able to actually submit your videos via the website, which I'm super stoked on. That's in the works right now. We got some new merch. I know, I know the person who does all of our merch got married and it's been taking a lot longer than I wanted it to take, but it is what it is. We'll have you uh, in some fresh summer politically homeless fits before too long. So don't worry about that. But what I do want to say is if you want to support this show, if you want to support this show, the best way to do it is to get in the Patreon. Okay. Politically Homeless Patreon, declare your patronage to your cause of nonpartisanship. <laughs> Please check it out. Think about it. Consider it. It means a lot. You get that bonus episode every week that is crowdsourced from the Patreon for the Patreon, and we get a little bit more wild. There's a little more freedom in there because there's a barrier to entry, and we're kind of hidden and we don't go as wild as like Tim Dillon, so we have a little bit of a defense if anybody comes after us in there, but we do get a little bit wild. We get a little wild and nothing is really off limits, which, as we know, in the current landscape, things out in the public are, you know, they're, eh, you know, like they're, eh. the United Post, the, the Postal Service is now like checking out our social media. That's, that's something we're talking about today. That's the world we live in, and to, to stay safe from that, one, we don't let anybody that works for the Postal Service in the Patreon. We are discriminatory in that way. Second, we, uh, we keep all the juicy stuff behind a paywall. And that's just the way it goes. I wish the world was different. But all I know is that if you listen to this podcast without joining the Patreon, you are a communist. At least a socialist. You Marxist motherfuckers. That's where we're at. Cause you just want it for free. You want me to work for you for free. This is like, it's like, it's like indentured servitude. And I don't appreciate it, but if you are cheap and you don't want to do it, or maybe you just don't, don't feel like it's, I'm worth it. You could just go leave a five-star review on Apple podcast. I'd really appreciate that. But with all that, that's all we need to do. That's all the housekeeping we got. Let's get right into it today. It's Friday. I'm feeling good. It's sunny outside. And I think it's time to get into the state of things. I guess we'll call it. I don't know. We're working this out together. Let's talk about some stuff and then get to your questions. (music) 
All right, let's talk about the K-Hive. The K-Hive. Kamala Harris's violent militia that exists online. Something that's been praised. You heard about it a lot. I mean, and, and it's kind of the Kamala Harris version of Bernie Bros, except much more egregious and uh, quite intense. But they've been praised as this kind of coalition of pragmatic liberals, um, which we will find out here soon. That is not at all accurate. Uh, but it's interesting to see the narrative difference between Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, the Bernie Bros, and the K-Hive. Um, they were attacked... Bernie was attacked so aggressively for his supporters by people like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And when you looked at the kind of the postmortem of the primary uh, that inevitably led somehow to Joe Biden becoming the president, uh, still blows my mind to this day that that is the reality that we live in. But when you look at the narrative, it was like Bernie bros were kind of accused of being toxic and, and aggressive and bigoted and all this other stuff. But when you really look at the data, like 2% of everybody online... <laughs> is a piece of shit, basically, at the end of the day. So 2% of Kamala Harris supporters were terrible. 2% of Warren, Biden, it didn't matter, right? Just generally speaking, 2% of any group online are terrible human beings. And that's normal, right? 2%, and it's like 1% of people comment on things. So <laughs> you can imagine which 1% that generally comes from. It's a whole thing. But we have this article here from the... From uh, this is the New York or the Los Angeles Times, excuse me. So this is kind of some praise here. It's covering Kamala Harris as politicians dread the sting of the hashtag K Hive, the fervent online fans of Kamala Harris. Uh, Representative Ro Khanna started pressing Vice President Kamala Harris to use her pres uh, procedural power to push a national minimum wage hike a few weeks ago. He found himself targeted by a swarm of online Harris supporters. And we got some quotes here. It says, I see progressives are on the message of the blame the black woman boogie boogie wo wait, blame the black woman boogie woman strategy. And then it says, Your misogyny is showing. Someone else wrote that. So Kana had aroused the wrath of the K Hive. Uh, Harris's extensive, loosely knit, and fiercely loyal fan base, which celebrates and defends Vice President with equal equal fervor. Members of the K Hive, a riff of on Beyonce's loyal fan base known as the Beehive. Wow, you're they're really correlating Beyonce with with Kamala Harris. That's comical. Sometimes use the hashtag K Hive in their social media posts, and many mark their allegiance in the Twitter profiles with yellow hearts and bee emojis. They share videos of Harris stepping off Air Force Two, making offline friendships, and wear socks and hoodies wearing her name and likeness. They organize virtual cooking Sunday parties and offer support to other Hive members. But it's not all sweetness. Almost any political activist group or reporter has who has questioned Harris has felt the group's sting. So you can see it's a pretty benign take on the K Hive, but now if you look at uh, something that was just dropped by the K by the Gray Zone, um, the K Hive has been boosted by trolls while media defends harassment campaign. So. This is hilarious. I love this so much. While the media defends K-Hive's disturbing attacks on critics of Kamala Harris, new findings reveal a Democratic Party-linked bot farm amplified its leaders. In an April 8th LA Times profile, the K-Hive attempts to put a positive spin on Twitter's 
Twi- uh, on, on, on Twitter's nest of Vice President Kamala Harris's superfans, omitting the group's online abuse, offline harassment, and alarming origins. Describing the gay hive as the type of modern political army that politicians increasingly rely on for both support and defense, the LA Times painted its members as political realists united by the desire to fend one of the most powerful politicians in the country from unfair attacks. That's just just that by itself. Like, defending politicians from unfair attacks. Give me a fucking break. It turns out that Harris... Harris's modern political army was manufactured with the aid of an army of fake Twitter accounts. After the term K-Hive was formally branded by MSNBC pundits like Joy Reid, uh, K-Hive leaders received a boost from a Democratic Party operative-controlled bot farm. One of the people most advanced by this bot nest is the widely recognized founder of K-Hive, Bianca De La Rosa. So they're employing like... Um, Turning Point USA techniques here with the bot farm and and boosting their accounts with uh, with just having multiple accounts and using those to retweet their own tweets that gets more retweets and gets more of an audience and it's kind of a it's kind of a it's a Twitter grift, pretty plain and simple. Now if we go down to what these people have actually done, I mean the calls for violence, the offline offline harassment. We have somebody here telling us this is one of Kenny Walden is one of the prominent members says, "Hey Bernie Sanders, I know you're cheap as hell, but here's a nice comfy casket. Jump in. It was only five dollars on Groupon. This funeral about to be litty as fuck." Okay. Um, in June 2020, De La Rosa unleashed a call for murderous violence, like actually people killing people for not agreeing. She says, "Y'all, uh, they're too soft." Got to kill. Very violent. Like actually killing people for not agreeing type of violent. Like actually killing people for not agreeing type of violent. Such declarations of violence may be why the Harris-friendly media takes little or no mention of Queen B. However, there is a particularly ironic exception to the code of silence around the K-Hive's menacing behavior. MSNBC's Malcolm Nance on Twitter that... The network's national security contributor acknowledged that some K-Hive tweets openly expressed racism and violent threats and asked his followers to report De La Rosa. Instead of being suspended, De La Rosa was hailed as the K-Hive's brilliant inspiration. Now, let's get into some of the real-world things. Because online, right, like, this is words being thrown around, people being assholes. That's one thing. Okay, what, what I'm about to read you right here is a completely different thing and much more real and actually causes real harm to people's lives. So this is under threats of harm. In its fawning depiction of K-Hive, the LA Times failed to mention that its members have taken their harassment beyond Twitter into people's personal lives. Two women told HuffPost that K-Hive members made threats against their children. K-Hive contacted one woman's ex-husband at his place of employment to tell him he should check in on their 11-year-old daughter. K-Hive members accused another woman of being a white supremacist, calling her place of work 15 times to get her fired. Then someone filed a port with Child Protective Services and falsely accused her of child abuse. The LA Times reported that K-Hiver Chanty Berry denied making threats when she tweeted a list of Harris critics who, quote, may go through some things pretty soon, end quote. However, in a video published on Twitter, the paper's author, K-Hive source Kenny Walden, threatened everyone on Berry's list, saying, something is about to happen to y'all. Y'all about to lose your motherfucking job. 
Walden promised, quote, every motherfucker who was on Chanty's list is a fucking revisionist and a white supremacist, end quote. The K-Hive list of alleged white supremacists happened to, happened to include people of color. K-Hive of, often insults people for being white. Sometimes they're anti-Semitic. De La Rosa says, the Jews ran off. They're mad. We're mad at them for abandoning us to go be white with white people. In another post, he suggests that Jewish people hate black people. Okay. So this is the kind of stuff. And there's more, more and more of this. If we go down, she calls a Latin, uh, a, a Hispanic person, the Latin version of a coon. Um, this is insane. And you, and you can see here just the difference, right? Daily B says Bernie bros are loud, proud, and toxic to Sanders campaign. And in, in this side by side article, it says Kamala Harris built a digital armor army. Now she gets to use it. So this is the this is one of the things I look at here and just the 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 clear narrative, the clear division, the clear manipulation of reality is so threatening to our to our way of communication. Like this is fucking lies. It's lies. At the end of the day, there's nothing else to call it. This is they've been we've been lied to. I mean, I didn't buy the bullshit, so I mean, I was lied to. I just didn't believe it. But like many people were lied to and thinking, I heard the Bernie bro thing so many times. So many times. And of course, there was like the Bernie bro narrative where it's just like yeah, a guy that supports Bernie, like whatever. But then it became, oh, you're a Bernie bro, so you must be some kind of like chauvinistic fucking piece of shit. And that never made any sense to me. I don't, I don't get how someone who, who was out there marching with Martin Luther King is now considered some kind of like racist bigot uh, for being white. And of course, there is like deep anti-Semitic roots in things like BLM and, and and other organizations, which I find odd. But whatever, this this is the kind of things that we need to keep our eyes out on, right? When you see something that just you gotta, it takes time, but there's a way to develop an intuition around bullshit, and it's it it's hard, and you've got to do. It takes time. And that's one of the reasons I started doing this show is because I think, well, I've been like putting the time in. I can kind of sniff out bullshit um, more than more than most people just because I've been inundated with bullshit for a lot of my career. So it just kind of happened that people bullshitting people was a big part of my life and I had to kind of be on the lookout for it. So now I translate that into talking about politics where bullshit is debatably the most pervasive in the entire world, right? Like that's that's where it lives. So I had to bring this up because Kamala Harris to me, seems like a fraud. She seems just so catty and cold and and indifferent, but manipulative at the same time. Like, has this real kind of sociopathic way of being. And it's one of the reasons she, like, failed in the primary and just couldn't raise any money because no one really, like, no one likes this woman. And I'm really excited to see what happens whenever uh, Biden doesn't run again and then she's forced to run against someone like Ron DeSantis, who is way more likable. Like, I don't like the guy's politics at all. I also don't like Kamala's politics. But, like, if I had to choose between Kamala and Ron DeSantis, I'm choosing Ron. <laughs> like that's that that's that's where I'm at, and and the weird thing is, like I'm not a conservative, and you know DeSantis is kind of a Trump that's not a douchebag. So I look at this and and I think, how were how were the Democrats so delusional as to make this woman their hope, right? The the hope for their future 
as a political party. And it's pretty clear that's what's happening. It's not subtle. So it's not like some kind of uh, really insightful political commentary to say that that's what's happening. It's just out in the open. It's really clear. So, but her, her, her following never gets criticized for harassing people, trying to get them fired and using that as, as leverage to shut people up. And even in this article, like David Sirota won't even comment on them when he worked for the for the campaign. He's a journalist for the, he worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign and he's a journalist. He won't even comment on this because of the way that he gets attacked. Like they, this is fear tactics. This is some next level shit and it's dark and weird and inappropriate. And needs to be called out for what it is. This Bianca lady needs to be put on blast. And the funny thing that is that what they're doing and in the in the K Hive is exactly the same thing that they just banned James O'Keefe for doing on Twitter, except a little bit more violent. I mean, you can say that O'Keefe was running spam accounts, and I, I buy that. That makes sense. Like it makes sense that Project Veritas would have a handful of accounts and kind of use them to boost their posts. Uh, a lot of organizations do that. It's sketchy and weird. But at the same time, you don't see Project Veritas threatening violence and, and trying to get people fired for not aligning with them politically. Like that, so while I do think that Project Veritas can be problematic at times, I don't understand how we can be so delusional as to believe that what they're doing is worse than what the K-Hive is doing. And I wanted to point that out because it just doesn't seem to add up to me. And the, the way that these people are treated so favorably... And with so little criticism, like that's what brought California to the place where it's at now, which is a giant dumpster fire, because there, was, there wasn't a lot of opposition to one political ideology. And that can go either way. Um, but when you have 0% chance of, of the other t- side getting a fair shake at things, well, you end up in, in a really dark place. And I think that we're moving down that path. And it kind of scares me in the way that we're seeing all this transpire. And the kind of calls for fake news and the calls for, you know, media bias and mainstream media bias are so pervasive. And this is one of the areas where people that were Bernie Sanders supporters and people that are, you know, conservatives kind of aligned because we both really got fucked as far as how the media portrayed the people that we supported. Some were justified, some was unjustified. But if that criticism was fairly distributed, we may have a different situation here, but that is no, by no means the case. By no means. If you're on the left, the real left, if you're a leftist, you have a, you're under under threat of being deplatformed, villainized, whatever. If you're a conservative and you're outspoken, I, even though I think your ideas are absurd most of the time, I I can agree that you're under threat of being deplatformed. Like I'm under threat of being deplatformed every day. Like it would not surprise me if I tried to open up Instagram and it's like, Hey, your account doesn't exist anymore. And that's, that's a weird way to live whenever somebody like Bianca can just tweet death threats to people and create real world consequences for people that she doesn't agree with via lies and then be praised as a brilliant woman by people that support Kamala Harris. It's so weird. And I had to bring that up, had to talk about it, be on the lookout just turn just try to find a way to turn your bullshit detector up to 11 cuz it's it's getting bad out there I just looked at my phone before I uh, got into this piece here, and I saw that Jonathan just signed up for the Patreon. Just got a notification on my phone. Jonathan, welcome to the Politically Homeless Patreon. I love you. I thank you. I appreciate you. You are uh, you will receive preferential treatment above everybody else that's listening to this that is not in the Patreon. So just wanted to let you know that we really appreciate you over here at the Politically Homeless team. 
at the at politically homeless HQ. Anyways, all right, we got this article here from the Guardian: outcry over U.S. Postal Service reportedly tracking social media posts. That headline on its own makes no sense to me because I was uninformed on what the Postal Service does, what the full scope of the Postal Service is. The U.S. Postal Service has reportedly been monitoring social media posts with a focus on people planning protests. That sounds constitutional. Um, The surveillance procedure known as the Internet Covert Operations Program, or ICOP, that's, that's, that's adorable. Tracks social media activity that is described as inflammatory and shares that information to government agencies. According to a government bulletin from March 16th obtained by Yahoo News, the program is part of the efforts of the United States Postal Service, uh, the, excuse me, the United States Postal Inspection Service, the law enforcement arm of the United States Postal Service, the USPIS, monitored social media accounts regarding planned protests occurring internationally and domestically on the 20th of March when the worldwide rally for freedom and democracy was scheduled to take place, according to the bulletin. The information regarding the demonstrations against lockdown measures was distributed through uh, Department of Homeland Security facilities. The agency collected information from Facebook as well as other program uh, platforms used by right-wing extremist groups such as Parler and Telegram. So the quote here says, ICOP analysts are currently monitoring monitoring these social media channels for any potential threat stemming from the scheduled protests and will disseminate intelligence updates as needed. And we get more and more here talking about the Capitol January 6th thing. This to me, okay, like I, the NSA, right? We got the NSA listening to me right now. The CIA has knows exactly what's going on. They know what I buy on Amazon. They see what I do online, uh, what my searches are. They know it doesn't matter if I use DuckDuckGo or Google or whatever. It's going to be easier via Google. But I feel like they have access to everything. The United States fucking Postal Service, however, flew under my radar. And this is funny. I was thinking about why this would happen, how this could happen. And the Postal Service, being what it is, is not really built to make money. It loses money every year, and that's fine. I mean, it's it's an investment into infrastructure, and it's kind of weird, and I think it could be better. And, and I would be... I, this is kind of something that I, one of my libertarian views, I could be okay with just like not having the postal service anymore and privatizing all of that and, and just not having that money pit. But now when you shed light on the fact that there's a, uh, an ICOP program, the United States postal service that does inspections, um, well, that seems weird. And it seems like, it seems like a way that the intelligence agencies could hide their surveillance in plain sight using the postal service and the, 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 the policing arm of that. Now, it makes sense now that, that I read this, that the Postal Service would have a law enforcement branch due to the fact that drugs and lots of things, actually, are sent through online. Maybe Wayfair is sending children via the Postal Service, and they, and they got to, like, take care of that somehow. You know, we all remember when that happened. Um, but a lot of drugs, guns, things like that, weapons, bombs, whatever, are sent through the Postal Service. So it makes sense now that they would have some law enforcement branch. But I think that would be focused on things happening in the mail, not things happening on social media. I don't really understand the correlation there unless they're tracking somebody on social media that's using the mail to, to, to distribute drugs or something like that. So... This is really, really strange, and I wanted to bring it up, not because I have like some kind of solution or some kind of 
uh, deep insight, but just because it was, it threw me the fuck off. Like this is so weird that we have the postal service being kind of a shill for the intelligence community to spy on us via social media and report the information back, especially around planned protests, which we do have a constitutional right to do. Now, of course, the January 6th situation um, did put a dent in that. And, you know, I think that was a little short-sighted on the uh, on the part of those idiots that ran into the Capitol thinking they were doing anything besides giving everybody an excuse to take away some rights of ours. But that's neither here nor there. What we do know is that the Postal Service is is checking out our social media and making sure we're not getting ourselves in any trouble. So take from this what you will. I wanted to cover it briefly just because it kind of caught my eye. We'll see, we'll see where this goes, I guess. Like, I just didn't know that the Postal Service were, were, were lackeys for uh, the CIA and the other intelligence community or the rest of the intelligence community. But it, it is, I guess there's nothing surprises me anymore. Like, this was weird, but at the end of the day, I'm not surprised, and you shouldn't be either, because Big Brother is always watching. Big Brother is always watching, and you should love Big Brother. (laughs) What a weird situation. Well, if you're looking forward to Gavin Newsom being recalled, it looks like Caitlyn Jenner is going to be an option for you. She's going to be on the ballot. Axios broke this today. Caitlyn Jenner makes it official for California governor. So we have Caitlyn Jenner going for it, sending it. Now, we're going to get into some pretty uh, out there theories that a buddy of mine sent my way that I think could make a little bit of sense, but let's just get into the, to the deets here from Axios. Former Olympic decathlete and reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner has filed her initial paperwork to run for governor of California and will officially announce her bid later today, her campaign, te- campaign tells Axios. Jenner, a longtime Republican, is seeking to replace Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom in a recall election, hoping her celebrity status and name recognition can yield an upset in the nation's most populous state. In the deep blue in deep blue California, she's decidedly not branding herself as a Trump Republican, even as she's counting on some of the former president's advisors to drive her strategy. She's assembled a team of prominent GOP operatives, including Tony Fabrizio and top pollster on Donald Trump's 2016 and 2020 campaigns, Ryan Irwin, founder of Red Rock Strategies, and Tyler Deaton, president of Alliance Strategies. She's also hired Stephen Chung, a former White House um, and campaign communications hand who worked on Arnold Schwarzenegger's successful campaign in 2003, Trump's former campaign manager, Brad Carscale, who is a complete joke. A personal friend of Jenner's has helped her assemble her team, but doesn't plan to take any official title on the campaign because that would be disastrous. Um, the campaign's website and win red donation page are set to go live today. So if you want to throw some money at Caitlyn Jenner, you'll have the opportunity to do that through the win red donation page. Jenner said in a statement that Sacramento needs an honest leader with a clear vision. And for that the past decade, we have seen the glimmer of the golden state reduced to one party rule that places politics over progress and special interests over people. The girl's not wrong there. The statement decries California's taxes as too high, also not wrong, and criticizes criticizes an over-restrictive lockdown response to the COVID pandemic, including on in-person schooling, also not wrong. This is Gavin Newsom's California, she says, where he orders us to stay home but goes out to dinner with his lobbyist friends. That is going to be just hammered, hammered 
the French Laundry is just going to get brought up so many times because Gavin Newsom is a fucking fraud. A campaign advisor tells Axios that Jenner has greater name ID than than Newsom and can command the kind of earned media that will go every possible demographic you can think of. We'll go to every possible demographic that you can think of. Jenner, a trans woman, is very socially liberal, the advisor said. She's running as someone that's socially liberal and fiscally conservative. That seems to be, I mean, a lot of people claim to be socially liberal and fiscally conservative, but that seems to have shifted in the past 10 or 20 years. We'll see how that goes, how that plays out for her. But it's not a bad campaign uh, position. Jenner publicly voiced support for Trump until 2018 when he rolled back federal guidelines allowing transgender students to use bathrooms of their choice. Uh, my hope in him was misplaced, she wrote. Well, that's a good pl- that's a good position to be in California for sure. Certainly, she has not seen eye to eye with Trump on a lot of things, the advisor said. I think Caitlin will talk will talk to anyone, Democrat or Republican. Donald Trump is not going to be the deciding factor for the state of California. Okay. So my initial thoughts on this, uh, one, it would be really hard to say anything disparaging about Caitlyn if she was a Democrat. But since she's a Republican, I'm pretty safe uh, from being called a transphobe for any kind of critical thought. So that feels good. It feels nice to be free and be able to treat a person like a person. Anyways, my knee-jerk reaction is I don't really want someone who came to prominence on the show Keeping Up With The Kardashians doing any kind of political anything. How about just we, I would just like, if you're going to be a celebrity that is a governor, be like Matthew McConaughey or Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like having, having earned it through some kind of uh of journey and not having done it via, via, you know, like getting fucked by Ray J and that becoming a reality show. That really fucks me up, right? I'm just like, I don't really understand how a sex tape turned into a multi-billion dollar franchise uh, that, that just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And wasn't like their dad is the re- one of the reasons that OJ got off. Like there's so many things there that just don't add up. Brilliant marketing. Brilliant marketing. But at the time, Bruce was kind of obnoxious to me and Caitlin is kind of obnoxious to me now. Let's not forget that Bruce ran someone over with their car. I'm pretty sure he was drunk driving before he became Caitlin. Can you, I'm also confused. Like, is it always she now? Do we like revisionist history the back so it's like always like bruce was a she but now i don't know it confuses me but i'm doing the best i can with my pronouns if i'm doing it wrong let me know um in a very violent and aggressive way because that's how those things are communicated these days anyways if you came to prominence on keeping up with the kardashians um or if you're kanye west i would prefer that like you're not really that involved in politics um now maybe i'm a hypocrite because i think matthew mcconaughey would be great for texas but texas is also much more stable than California. That said, California is a lot crazier than any other, most other states. I mean, I guess Oregon and, and is pushing, pushing there, but California, it can't get much worse, but it's also crazy. So maybe like Caitlyn Jenner is the right answer to match the level of like insanity that's happening there. Maybe that's what they need. I mean, it really is a pro Caitlyn Jenner is a product of California, been there for 50 years. So I can't really say that Caitlyn Jenner is any less California than Matthew McConaughey is Texas, right? She sums up California pretty well, you know? So the theory is that I have heard from a buddy of mine who I will not name. Maybe he can name himself in the comments of this while it's on an IGTV or whatever. But the theory is that the left, the left 
is pushing Jenner, right, supporting Jenner as a candidate on the conservative side because the way that the uh, recall election will work, okay, just break this down just simply, as I just learned today, honestly, you'll have uh, two sections of the of the vote, of the ballot. One, part one is, do you think Gavin Newsom should be recalled, yes or no, right? And if there's a majority of people who say yes, he should be recalled, then the person who gets the majority of votes, not not the majority, excuse me, the most votes on the runoff ballot will become governor. It doesn't have to be a majority, just the most, right? And there's going to be hundreds of people on there, but there will only be a few with name recognition. So what my friend's theory was is that the left isn't going to attack Jenner. They're going to subversively support her in order to split the conservative vote and make sure that Gavin Newsom stays governor. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the theory that I've heard about what the left's tactic is going to be to make sure that Gavin Newsom stays governor. Now, I've heard people like Chris Sachs and Chamath Palihapitiya thinking about jumping into the race, which they've kind of backed off of. But I would love, love, love to see Chamath as the governor of California. I think that would be fantastic. And he would run as a Democrat. So if you have another prominent Democrat that ends up running in that in that recall election, that's also going to take away from Gavin Newsom. So you, what you're really going to want to see here, and what I think would be really interesting, is it is two prominent Republicans, two prominent Democrats running in the same election and splitting things up and just seeing what happens. I think that may be the most democratic thing to do, but it's going to have to be, if there's a Democrat that runs, it's going to have to be a similar situation to what we have with Caitlin here, a political outsider. Because if you run against Gavin as a conventional Democrat, you're going to be um, ostracized, right? It's kind of political suicide as far as allegiance with the Democratic Party. And Gavin is Nancy Pelosi's nephew, I believe. So that's just kind of a family of bullshit and fuckery. So Really curious to see how this shakes out. I hope Gavin Newsom gets recalled. I think that would be fantastic. He has failed his state over and over again in the past couple of years, and it's been really sad to watch. Uh, as someone who lived in California for a little while, even in the, the six months that I lived in L.A., it got much, much worse within that short time frame, and that was pre-COVID. So I've, I've heard the reports of how Venice is right now, and damn, that's like sad to see because I love that spot. It's like my like my stopping grounds when I'm in when I'm in LA. Um, but it's rough now. It's it's a rough place to live, and it's it's getting to be really bad. So what California does need is a conservative. Like California needs someone to put some time in. I don't know if Caitlin is politically competent enough to do that, but maybe she'll surround herself with the people that are. So. There's a lot to think about here. I'm curious to see how this is this will play out. We've got time. This happens over the period of like 180 days. So it's like 60 days for one thing, you know, 60 to 30, 30 to 60 for another thing. So it takes some time to to see how this all shakes out, but this is something everybody's going to be watching closely. And I know most people that I know, conservative, liberal, democrat, whatever it is, really want Gavin to be held accountable for his decisions. And I think you know, as a wine merchant that kept his wine, his vineyards open during COVID while everybody else had to close theirs and has, has just continued to have this air of exceptionalism that he probably got passed down from his aunt, Nancy Pelosi. Well, that, that to me disqualifies you from being a leader. You could do that as, as some kind of business like CEO or some shit, right? Like that's expected of them, but not a public servant. Like part of being a public servant is serving the population. 
serving your constituents, serving the people who got you elected, not fucking them over every time you get a chance. And that seems to be uh, Gavin Newsom's political you know, motivation. For some reason, I don't understand. So I think it's gonna be. It would be good for for California to have some conservative leadership, um, just to kind of put things back in order because this has gotten it's gotten way out of hand, way out of hand. And they're just people. They're losing tax revenue in droves, and they spend like drunken sailors. So you can't pull that off. You can't pull that off. If you're gonna spend like California spends, you've got to be friendly to business. It's the cost of spending. That's why Texas can do what it does because it runs a balanced budget. And it's friendly to business, so it can spend. I don't think it spends enough, in my opinion, but that's just me. So we'll see how this goes. It's going to be pretty interesting. I, I'm not stoked on Caitlin necessarily. I'd like to see uh, Chris Sachs be, run as a Republican. Uh, and he's a hedge fund guy or a venture capitalist guy. So if you, if you don't know who he is, check him out. Check out the All In podcast. They talk about this quite a bit, just what's going on in California in general. And I really appreciate their perspective on what's going on. So shout out to the All In podcast. And Caitlin, best luck to you. Without a doubt, this will be interesting. It'll be it'll be a very the the the, the election's going to have the vibe of just California in general, which is it's kind of exciting. It'll be fun. We'll have a good time with it, especially on this show, right? I think so. I hope so. Now let's move on to your questions. All right, first up, we've got Christina, and she did a little bit of editing with this video, which I very much appreciate. Let's get into what she has to say. Hi, Connor. I came across a video recently about a diversity training program based on critical race theory that some institutions are adopting. A woman refers to all white people as demons. Here's the clip. All white people are racist. So <laughs> I put this up because I really want any white person in the room to know up front that this is what we're dealing with, that it's not gonna be this coddling of white tears and what that looks like. We're not gonna discuss, oh, maybe some of us have worked it out. No, you're always gonna be racist, actually. So even- <laughs> So let's just look at that. Um, you're always going to be, there's no win, right? You're always gonna be racist. As long as you are white, you're always gonna be racist. You can't even do like a Robert Downey Jr. in, uh, in Tropical Thunder and like <laughs> change your skin color. No, none of that's gonna work. Doesn't matter what your history is, your background is, how you're raised, how you treat people. None of that stuff matters at all. You're always going to be racist. Let's continue. When you're on your path to trying to figure out how to be a better human being, um, because I look at all these fucking people. <laughs> it's just a bunch of white women being like, uh, okay, <laughs> whatever you say, lady. I believe that white people are born into not being human. Like that actually, instead of people of color and black folks being dehumanized, that actually everyone is dehumanized off rip within white supremacy, that y'all are born into a life and that's what y'all are taught to do, to be demons. So we're, de so we're taught to be demons. Jesus Christ. How is this person taken seriously? Also, the way she spells her name, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H. -A 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 don't do that to your children. If you're thinking about having children and naming them Ashley spelled that way, please don't. In this particular way, white people are all racist. So I just want y'all to know that up front. I just found out this video came out last year, but it didn't make it into the leftist media circles, only the conservative ones. Is this just an example of the worst of the worst critical race theory has to offer? Or is this what it is? To be demons. As someone who votes Democrat, I want to hold the left to higher standards. 
And from what I've been learning about the programs that have adopted the language and ideology of critical race theory, it just seems batshit crazy to me. I'd like to know your thoughts on this. So Christina has taken a, a bit of a stand against critical race theory, which I, I admire and respect because there's just so much going on here. So no, it, so is this the worst of the worst with critical race theory? Yes. Is this what critical race theory is? Yes. Now, those things can both be true, right? Because there's like the worst of the worst of everything, right? You have like the worst of the worst of Christianity. Some people doing really uh, Westboro Baptist Church saying that, you know, women deserve to be raped and shit like that. Like, that's insane. That's crazy, right? So you're going to see a, a small percentage of the people who ascribe to critical race theory um, going this far, right? Calling white people demons, um, which if you were to turn that on any other, on any other group, it would be called what it is, which is propaganda. This is the kind of stuff that Nazis used um, in World War II, right? It was used in, in the same thing that we used against Japan in World War II. Like the propaganda went both ways in World War II and in all kinds of directions, right? It's like, well, these people are eating children and they're demons and they're, you know, they're doing this thing and that thing. It's been used. This kind of tactic is not new. It's been used over and over and over again, and we're seeing it happen now, right? It's being used in a different direction. And it's kind of been sorted out and, and, and sifted through over time to make it really efficient at doing what it's doing. It's also not surprising. And the reason it's not surprising, and here's where it gets interesting, right? So many things had to happen for critical race theory to become what it has and become as prominent as it has. One, there's a, a media that thrives on negative on the negative, right? So that's a big part of it. Two, we have a country in the United States that is inept at taking responsibility for its failures. Right, so we have a a a, a country that is that worships itself. Right, we have a country that is narcissistic as a culture. Our culture is steeped in narcissism of self worship. United States is the best country in the world. Yada yada yada. We've been told this since we were kids, right? Which is which is is propaganda in itself. It's propaganda from the country for the country, right? It's fed back into via the propaganda machine. So that benefits, right? China does the same thing. Russia does the same thing. It's the same story. We're not better than anyone else in the way that we propagandize our own population. So when you don't take responsibility for your mistakes as a nation and don't own those and you teach inaccurate history, this is a big part of it too. When you teach inaccurate history to children, whenever they find out that they were fucking propagandized through the school system, they become resentful. Okay, when you lie to people and they find out they were lied to, they become resentful. And there's a lot going on here. The reason that one of the reasons I feel that critical race theory has gotten prominence in the way that it has is because there was a lot of us that were out there in the world that noticed systemic injustice years ago. Right. And we're very angry about it when it, kind of the wool was pulled over out from over our eyes. Right, you see what's going on, and and the class issues, and the way people are kind of manipulated and 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 taken advantage of, and it, it's 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 very upsetting, right? And you go through this phase, just like anything else, where you're angry about that for a while. Like it's just it's just anger and resentment. I was like that with the Christian church for a long time. I had I had a hard I had some negative experiences with the Christian church, and I just was so resentful of it for years until I kind of reconciled that and and and, and took a more mature view. Even though I don't believe in the ideology, I can respect it and appreciate it for the people that do. And it takes time to get there. So when you're living in pure resentment and frustration and anger, it's not productive. But this is where this kind of stuff comes from. Now. One of the things that that 
that facilitates that in people is, is shame. Okay. So like I said, many of us found out about this systemic injustice and kind of the lies and the bullshit and the fuckery years ago. And have kind of gone through that phase of being ashamed of ourselves for not knowing if you were ignorant to these kind of things up until the day that George Floyd died was murdered. And then it all comes to light at one time. Right? So for me, it was like, oh, wow, the, 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 the reality of Native America, the way Native Americans were treated, right, in westward expansion. Oh, the reality of slavery and the manipulation there after it was over with, Jim Crow era, like slowly kind of trickling in. All the injustice that I have to now process over time, over years, right, from like right out of college at like 22 to like 30, right? There's like the, a, 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 a tapering of understanding. If you were... If you were blind to that for a while, and then all of a sudden, boom, one big event happens, and all this information just gets slammed at you at one time, you feel shame, anger, and resentment all at one time, and you're going to latch on to the, net, the, the, the group of people that resonate and commiserate with that same sense of anger, rage, resentment, and shame. And I think that's what we're happening. That's what's happening here with an overcompensation in the way that we're addressing issues that are by no means pragmatic. Because when do you act pragmatic when you're angry, when you're resentful? That's not where pragmatism is, is based in. That's not a grounded view of reality. And it takes some time to process that frustration, that anger, to get to a place where you can view things with a cool head, with your feet on the ground, and try and make real, sustainable change. But that's not what these people want, right? And when I say these people, I mean the media. I mean the people that thrive on donations. I mean the grifters out there, right? What they want is knee-jerk reactions. If it bleeds, it leads, right? Facts be damned. Information be damned. Context be damned because context doesn't matter. Listen to all the things you say. Like, if you're white, you're racist. White silence is violence. But if you're... But only listen... When a black person is speaking, don't speak, don't cry, don't do anything. So like you, you, you're playing an unwinnable game always, always. And that's the, that's the ethos of critical race theory is that there is no win. If you are white, there is no win. You are an oppressor, end of story. And that's very interesting. And we look at all of this. And again, there's, there's, there's place ways we, we can go so many directions with this, but I think what this woman said in her talk, what Ash Lee said in her talk is what critical race theory is, right? It, it's, it conflicts what Martin Luther King had to say and his push for colorblindness. It conflicts what many black people believe is the right path forward and, and thrives in victimhood and then shaming the oppressor for creating that victimhood in perpetuity. So the idea is that are espoused by something like critical race theory only thrive in an environment where racism is perceived to be the number one issue. And without racism being the number one issue, they fail to exist. So you would know that for them, they're not going to give up on their grift, right? If things got better, they would just find the next thing. They would just find the next thing. They need that thing. So let's ignore all the all the progress that's been made, the good that's happened. Focus on the things like black communities have been fucked over and over and over again. 
and something needs to be done about that. But when you, when you just throw everything at the wall, it's hard to tell where to focus. And that's the, that's the goal, in my opinion. That's what I see as the goal of this movement. Is distraction from the real problems by making everything a problem in order to fundraise and make that money so you could buy four houses all over the place for $5 million. Right? This is, this is a textbook grift. So we got to be mindful of that. It's a bunch of people doing something to try to alleviate the shame they feel for having been ignorant about systemic injustice over time, getting hammered with that realization all at once, with no means to process it, and then being held into that shame by the person that they perceive that they somehow oppressed and don't really understand how they oppressed them, but think it's the right thing to do to not ask questions, not be curious, and and being discouraged from even asking questions because that in itself is oppression. So there's a lot there. There's a lot there, and I rambled quite a bit, but I hope that I covered something there, and that's kind of where I see critical race theory. And this is coming from someone who's been outspoken about things like systemic racism for years and years, and the way that police behave, and their overreach for years and years, way before I was doing this podcast. And it is. It it does elicit anger and sadness and frustration and, and, and shame that you live in a place that is incapable of taking responsibility for its mistakes on a large scale and incapable of teaching people accurate history. That way they can learn to process these atrocities over time and see that leveraging power and leveraging ideology that result in something in westward expansion and the genocide of the Native Americans is it's, it's, it's hard to get all of that at one time. But we got to be able to understand how the, the problems with power and the shadow side of what created a nation that is really powerful, a very powerful nation that needs to take responsibility for itself. So I think that critical race theory is getting in the way of that. I think that it's conflating things that don't really add up. I think it's counterfactual in many ways. And I think it's actually part of the problem, not the solution. And that's where I stand with that. But I think that we could fix this by focusing on the real problems, putting our resources, energy, emotional energy, psychological energy into the, into, into the, the areas that can create systemic improvements over time. But that doesn't happen today. It doesn't happen tomorrow. It's, it's a small thing that happens. So it's a small accumulation of positive impacts over time. And we have a wildly inefficient government that seems really inept at, at, at solving any fucking problems and actually thrives when more problems exist because that just creates more divisiveness. So there's so many things at play here in this kind of perfect storm of bullshit. And it's hard to handle. But there are solutions out there. And there are real pragmatic thinkers out there on all sides of this. And the best thing that we have with media like what we're on right now, right, with this podcast is that we can get people together like Coleman Hughes, right, who were really, as a young man, an incredible thinker and just just kind of a master of dialogue at, at a young age, which is incredibly impressive and has, has a great history in making positive change for this country. So we'll see where it goes from here. But, yeah, I think w- what you pointed out, what you edit, not very nicely edited into your video there is kind of the essence of critical race theory, in my opinion. All right, Paige, what do you got for us here? I'm really wondering what your thoughts are on this whole factory mix-up for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine 
And I'm also curious your thoughts and like the discussion on how most of the side effects that are coming from all of these vaccines, regardless of the brand, it seems to be affecting women the most. And I'm really just kind of curious what we would, the conversation would be if let's say these vaccines were causing impotence in males or some other issue that only applies to men. I'm kind of curious what the conversation would be. So love to hear your thoughts. So let's start with the second part first there. Um, I think actually what's happening with, and we're hearing this with a lot of vaccine stuff, irregular periods, things like that. Um, most of the vaccine reactions that are documented by the CDC, everybody don't fucking come at me are with women. I think 70 some odd percent of the, of the adverse reactions are with women. It seems like I've only seen men that have had, um, the, uh, like neurological disorder where they're having tremors and, and things like that. I've only seen that in, Oh no, I've actually seen that in women too, but more men than women. But I haven't seen, of course I haven't seen every documented case. So what, what I've come to understand and, and looked into this is that, it may actually be causing impotence in men in the way that it it, it um, mimics that spike protein. So that spike protein that it's that the mRNA, whatever, this is, I'm not a fucking biologist, but the way I understand this and what I'm seeing happening with people's periods and the way it's been explained to me is that it's mimicking that spike protein that's on COVID that is also very similar to spike proteins that are in the women's reproductive system and in male reproductive systems. The reason that it's becoming more of a problem with, with menstrual menstrual cycles and things like that for women is because men don't have a menstrual cycle in the same way. So the adverse reactions when it comes to periods and things like that are obviously going to be focused on women because men won't find out if this impacted their fertility in any way until they're trying to get pregnant or if they're trying to get someone pregnant or whatever, you never know what can happen these days. But um, but until they're in that situation, so it may be doing the same thing to men that it's doing to women in a, in a different in a different way. Um, we just wouldn't know because men don't have that monthly reminder that they are uh, reproductive beings in the way that women do. So I think there's there's that. But again, I'm not. I don't trust pharmaceutical companies at all. <laughs> at all at all so like it's hard i'm not like a, an, an unbiased adverse uh, uh I'm, not, I'm not an unbiased uh commentator on this situation right i have i have severe doubts about the ethics of pharmaceutical companies and i have for years so for me i i lean away from medical intervention especially pharmaceutical intervention if i can um, if there's any way that, that that's possible, I don't take painkillers. I don't take, if I get a, if I get the flu, I don't really take medication. I just like, you know, grit and bear it, do the thing, let my immune system recover in the way that it does. And I try to interfere with that as little as possible and only support my immune system. That's kind of my philosophy. It's been my philosophy for a long, long time. Um, but anyways, here we are with this. So we're doing some kind of some funky things. It's having women are having an effect. Women that are even around people that have gotten the vaccine are having really strange periods, really heavy periods, lots of clotting in their periods. So that's been uh, quite interesting to see. If it was men, well, I think the thing is with men, there would be less self-reported issues. Um, it would have to be something really, it would have to be something really over the top, right? Whereas like, Sometimes you have a heavy period every now and then. I've been with enough women to know, like sometimes you get a you get a big one, right? And so that you can kind of write one off as like, wow, that was a big period. But if it happens months and months in a row, then you can know something something has shifted there, something has changed. So 
women are much more in tune with their bodies in that way where men, I don't think would report issues as much. So I think actually when it comes to uh, vaccine reaction awareness, it's actually going to, you're going to get more information from women because they're more in tune with their bodies and they have this monthly cycle that can be disrupted and is very noticeable from women. So I think that it's actually, you're, you're getting more and better information from women than you would from men. Now, if we want to talk about this, um, this mix up from Johnson and Johnson. So <laughs> factory mix up, a manufacturing subcontractor in Baltimore mixed ingredients from the coronavirus vaccine for Johnson and Johnson and and AstraZeneca delaying us shipment of the one and done shot. So what they did was in about 15 million batches, this happened for days until Johnson and Johnson did their quality control check for about 15 million batches. Um, they actually mixed the ingredients with the AstraZeneca vaccine with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So there were two vaccines, they mixed up the ingredients and then they had to quarantine 15 million doses, um, which is a lot. Cause I think they'd only delivered like 7 million at that time. So this happened last month. It's a little bit of an older article, but yeah, I mean this, this happens in any kind of compounding of, of pharmaceuticals, right? You can get things mixed up. This is a, this is a human error. Um, it seemed like they caught it before anything went out. So I don't see this being like a huge deal, except for the fact that they were trying to get this thing um, approved for emergency authorization, um, which is not FDA approved, by the way. That just means it's approved for emergency authorization, which means it has lower standards based on a dire need. So this doesn't mean that much to me. I mean, this is like, well, they caught it, right? They wouldn't have caught it and this would have gone out and like fucked a bunch of people up. Yeah. That would have been really interesting to see what that did about vaccine hesitancy, but, um, they caught it. You know, it was just, it, it, somebody probably got fired because <laughs> right? this was a human error here and, and things got weird, but yeah, 15 million doses. I don't feel bad for Johnson and Johnson, given the fact that they're just like another pharma company that I don't really, uh, have a lot of respect for. So yeah, I don't see much. I don't have a whole lot of thoughts on, on the doses mix up um, because they caught it. If they wouldn't have caught it, this could have been a, a fucking disaster. I don't know what would have happened with those two mixed together. Maybe we've had like, it would have ended up being like um, a bunch of superheroes, like some toxic waste <laughs> that turned people into like supervillains. That'd been weird. That'd been cool. That actually would have been nice. 15 million people just being like, <laughs> fucking superheroes all of a sudden I'd be bummed. I didn't get the vaccine. Then I'd be like, is there any left? I want some, but no, I don't see a ton there, but I think that yeah, the reactions with, with, within women are something to keep an eye on because there's been enough. I mean, there's been enough reports that it's kind of scary and we'll see what happens. We're not going to know for a while, but given the fact that, um, I'm probably on some kind of watch list for Instagram, this is not going to go on IGTV. Just putting that out there for y'all. Well, there's no something to think about on this episode. It's just me rambling and y'all's questions. If you want to submit questions, shoot me a shoot me a video that's recorded on the iPhone, right? Not on Instagram. Record it on your iPhone or on your phone. Doesn't matter what kind of phone it is. Record it. Send it to me via the DMs. Not in the 15 second clips. In a full video format, it has to be less than a minute. So less than a minute. Your questions in my DMs at Connor Wanders on Instagram. And then uh, I'll get you on the show, unless it's weird. And don't send me any, like, dick pics, please, or dick videos. That would not be fun. I would not appreciate that. But that's it for today, y'all. Make sure to review the show on Apple Podcasts. Jump in that Patreon if you're not a communist. And submit your videos. Um, anything else? 
Anything else? Nope. Keep your head on straight. Love you. See you next time. Bye.